from New York, this is Democracy Now! I'm here to mourn, and I'm mourning the life of this young man, my son. Mental illness should not be your ticket to death. Seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers in Virginia have been indicted on murder charges for killing a shackled black man named Ivo Otieno by piling on him and pinning him to the ground for 11 minutes inside a mental health hospital in Virginia. We'll speak with the family attorney, Ben Crump. Then we continue to look back at the U.S. invasion of Iraq 20 years later. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. Those were the words of George W. Bush two months after the U.S. invasion. Twenty years later, Iraq remains a shattered nation. We'll speak with Raif Abdul-Ahad. Twenty years ago, he was an architect in Iraq. After the invasion, he began working as a journalist, become one of the most noted reporters in the Middle East. He'll join us today to talk about his new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations warns in a new report two billion people, or a quarter of humanity, lack access to safe drinking water, and nearly half the global population has no access to basic sanitation. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced the findings Wednesday as the U.N. Water Conference opened three days of meetings, the first such event in nearly half a century. Water is a human right and the common development denominator to shape a better future. But water is in deep trouble. We are draining humanity's lifeblood through vampiric overconsumption and unsustainable use, and evaporating it through global eating. In Santiago, Chile, protesters marked World Water Day Wednesday with a march demanding access to safe drinking water and sanitation. Chile is in the grips of a 13-year mega-drought, with more than half the nation's population suffering from severe water scarcity. This is journalist and social activist Lucia Sepulveda. We are here representing many who cannot join us, because in their territories they have no water, because they have a miserable quality of life, because the water is being taken away by logging companies, because the water is being used by a single crop plantations. Here in the United States, more than two million people lack running water and basic indoor plumbing, with renters and people of color most likely to be affected. In California, at least five people were killed and over 100,000 homes and businesses left without electricity after fierce winter storms brought heavy rain and wind gusts of up to 80 miles an hour. Parts of California's central San Joaquin Valley face catastrophic flooding, with estimates that up to 100,000 acres of farmland are underwater. In Southern California, the National Weather Service's two rare tornadoes touched down this week, injuring two people and damaging dozens of structures in Los Angeles County. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky returned to the front line near the devastated city of Bakhmut on Wednesday, promising to respond to every blow following a string of Russian attacks on civilian sites across Ukraine that killed at least eight people and injured dozens Wednesday. In Moscow, Russian officials have warned the United Kingdom not to send ammunition to Ukraine containing depleted uranium. The metal is a byproduct of the enrichment process used to make nuclear warheads and fuel for power plants. It's both toxic and radioactive and has been linked to congenital birth defects, cancer and kidney damage. This is Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, speaking Wednesday. While there is no convention to ban depleted uranium shells, the United Nations General Assembly regularly considers resolutions calling on nations not to produce or use depleted uranium. Every time, the United Kingdom, the United States and France vote it down. Since the 1990s, the U.S. has fired munitions containing hundreds of tons of depleted uranium in Iraq, Serbia, Kosovo and Syria, as well as a former U.S. naval training range in Vieques, Puerto Rico. On Capitol Hill, Code Pink activists with the group Code Pink repeatedly interrupted U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Wednesday as he testified to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This is Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin. The Start negotiating. You know, if you don't like the Chinese proposal, where is your peace proposal? Police moved in to arrest Code Pink members as they delivered their messages to Blinken and senators. In Russia, security forces have raided the homes of people affiliated with the banned Memorial Human Rights Center, confiscating items and equipment and bringing some of the group's members in for questioning. Memorial won the no Right Livelihood Award in 2004 and the Nobel Peace Prize in 2022 for its work documenting human rights violations and crimes committed by the former Soviet Union. It was outlawed by the Russian government in late 2021, ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, the International Criminal Court has expressed concern over comments by former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, who said on Monday, quote, it's quite possible to imagine a hypersonic missile being fired from the North Sea from a Russian ship at the Hague courthouse. Medvedev added, any attempt by the ICC to arrest President Vladimir Putin on war crimes charges would amount to a declaration of war. Russia, the United States and Ukraine have not ratified the Rome statute treaty that established the International Criminal Court. In 2002, then-President George W. Bush signed a bipartisan bill known as the American Service Members Protection Act, authorizing U.S. military action to bring about the release of any U.S. personnel being detained at the request of the International Criminal Court. The United Nations is calling for an international specialized support force to deploy to Haiti to help stem a worsening gang crisis, which has already killed over 530 people this year. Gang violence steadily rose amidst mounting political and economic instability following the 2021 assassination of the president, Jovenel Moïse. Gangs now control over half of Haiti, while some 160,000 have been displaced, many now living in makeshift homes. The gangs invaded us. I lost my husband because of the gang war. 
I am alone with my children. I was living on the street, and after many searches, they found this place for us to stay in. Now I can't go back home. I lost everything. Half of Haiti's population does not have enough food. The U.N. warns children are especially at risk of gang violence and face kidnappings, forced recruitment and sexual violence. A 6.5-magnitude earthquake killed at least 19 people and injured hundreds more in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The earthquake struck Tuesday evening in the mountainous northeast of Afghanistan, near its border with Pakistan, damaged buildings triggering landslides. Back in the United States, a judge in Wyoming has put a temporary hold on the state's recently enacted abortion ban pending a legal challenge, citing the constitutional right of Wyoming residents to make individual health care decisions. Meanwhile, in Idaho, one hospital announced it would stop delivering babies as too many doctors have left the state over its abortion ban, which criminalizes abortion providers. Expectant residents of Sand Point in northwest Idaho will now have to drive 46 miles for labor and delivery care. The U.S. Central Bank has raised interest rates by another quarter of a percent. It's the eighth time in a row the Federal Reserve has raised the cost of borrowing, even though the Fed's own forecasts show the hikes could cost two million people their jobs. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren blasted Fed Chair Jerome Powell's decision, tweeting, quote, I've warned for months that the Fed's current path risks throwing millions of Americans out of work. We have many tools to fight inflation without pushing the economy off a cliff, Senator Warren said. The International Monetary Fund approved a $3 billion loan for Sri Lanka this week amidst its worst economic crisis since gaining independence. Inflation has soared to above 50 percent as people struggle to pay for food. It's the 17th IMF bailout Sri Lanka's received and the third since the end of its civil war in 2009. In Lebanon, protesters rallied in Beirut Wednesday to decry worsening economic conditions. Many of the protesters were former security force members whose state pensions have been rapidly losing value in a dire, amidst a dire economic crisis. The Lebanese pound lost more than 98 percent of its value against the U.S. dollar since 2019. And in Argentina, inflation has topped 100 percent for the first time since its financial crisis of the early 90s. Argentina struggled to turn around its economy amidst government infighting and ministerial turnover. Last year, massive protests called out austerity measures resulting from IMF bailouts and the government's mismanagement of its debt. Fed up, Argentines say they want change in their leadership. Let all the politicians go. I'm tired, tired, just tired of all this, of the politicians who fight while the people die of hunger. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we speak to civil rights attorney Ben Crump, representing the family of Ivo Otieno. Seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers in Virginia have been indicted on murder charges—murder charges—for killing him by piling on top of him, suffocating him at a mental health hospital in Virginia. Our music break is a song Ivo recorded called Can't Wait. Holly Gray. Yeah. By the time it's said and done, I'ma have a lot to be said. Yeah. When I was on the court, you know I just had to leave it on the court. Cause I didn't know when I was down, no it'd be ahead. Looking at the future, yeah. Sometimes it be looking dark and looking gloom. I don't know if I'ma make it, I don't know. But like surgery, I'm praying to God. And you know I'm living anxious. 
I don't know what happened, I don't know what happened to love What, what happened to friendship, we lost some closure And people changed, I didn't know what happened I thought you was real, I thought you was a soldier I thought you I had to do this by myself, mama. I had to go out by myself, mama. They didn't believe that I would make it too. No. Looking at me when I was 22. Looking back at my life, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for the ones that were closest to me. Yeah. So I keep it real with the ones around me, and I just the real ones yeah. around me. And everything gotta be for a reason. I ain't worried about other shit. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. A warning to our audience. The story contains images and descriptions of police violence. We begin today's show looking at the death of Ivo Otieno a 28-year-old black man and aspiring musician who was killed March 6 inside a hospital in Virginia, where he'd been taken to receive mental health treatment. Shocking video released this week shows seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers violently pinned Ivo Otieno to the hospital floor and piled on him for more than 11 minutes, suffocating him. Earlier this week, a Virginia grand jury indicted the 10 men involved on second-degree murder charges. Oteno's death occurred at Central State Hospital, a psychiatric facility in Dinwiddie County, Virginia. New video released Wednesday reveals at least one officer had also repeatedly punched Ivo earlier that day when a group of them rushed into his cell, his jail cell. When the officers carried Ocheno out of the cell. He was no longer moving. They put his limp body in a van to transport him to the hospital, where he died after being pinned to the ground by the seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers. Ivo Ocheno was an aspiring musician who suffered from mental health challenges. He'd been taken from his home and locked up three days before he was killed, after a neighbor called police to report he'd walked onto their property and had taken some lights and was banging on the front door. This is Ivo Otieno's mother, Caroline Oko, who moved to Virginia with her family from Kenya in the 90s. Even though Ivo was going through mental illness, what I saw today what I saw today was heartbreaking America. It was disturbing. It was traumatic. My son was tortured, to put it right. Mm. I saw the torture. Mm. There is no way that Henrico County Sheriff deputies were on him, seven people seven officers on one man. And all this started when my son went to hospital on the third. And that evening he was taken to jail, whisked from the back of the jail into the hospital. Those three days at Henrico County Jail were a horror. I've seen it on video. And I think there's some more. But I'm here to mourn, and I'm mourning the life of this young man, my son. 
mental illness should not be your ticket to death. Amen. There was a chance to rescue him. There was a chance to stop what was going on. And I don't understand how all systems failed him. All systems. I don't understand why one single system could not hold up and say stop. We stop here. Yes. My son was treated like a dog, worse than a dog. I saw it with my own eyes on the video. That was Caroline Oko, the mother of Ivo Otieno, who was killed by seven sheriff's deputies and three hospital workers inside a mental health facility in Virginia, March 6. We go now to civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who's representing Ivo's family. Ben, welcome back to Democracy Now! This horrific story continues to unfold because more and more video has been released. Tell us the, what happened on March 6th, especially with the latest video that's hours before what we had seen and what the family is calling for right now. How did this happen to I Ivo? Uh, thank you for having me, Amy. And there's more video to be released that is equally disturbing that has not been released uh, to the public that the family and our legal team have been able to review. Uh, on March 6, Ivo Otenio was having a mental health crisis, Amy. And regrettably, like so many other black people in America who have mental health issues, they aren't treated like medical issues. They're treated like criminal issues. And many times when they are confronted by the police, these mental health issues leads to them being sentenced to death like we saw in this disturbing video of Ivo. I mean, he was in a mental hospital, for God's sakes. Isn't it foreseeable that people who are, have mental health issues are in crisis and they're in the hospital, that they're going to have situations where they have crisis, and so they should be able to deal with them without the person being killed. And when you look at the video, he was handcuffed at his wrist. He had leg irons on his ankles. And so he posed no threat to anyone, not himself, not to the officers or hospital staff. You look at the video, his body seemed lifeless when they dragged him to the car, and certainly when they dragged him into the room where we witnessed him being face down and seven sheriff's deputies from Henrico County and three security guards from the medical facility all piled on top of him, all put the brunt of their weight on him, uh, put their knees on his back, on his neck, not for a few minutes, but for almost 12 minutes. And as the prosecutor said, Amy, when she charged them with second-degree murder, they literally smothered him to death. And that is tragic. 
when you think about he committed no crime, he was there because he Let had me just play, Ben. Let me play the Dinwiddie County Commonwealth's attorney, Ann Cabell Baskerville, speaking during one of the first hearings last week for the seven deputies charged in the death of Ivo Ochino. He was held down on the ground, prone on the ground, for 12 minutes by all seven of our defendants charged here, including this one. Uh, so much so that they smothered him, and they smothered him to death. It is the defendant's position that the victim in this case was agitated and combative, two words that they have all used. There is video footage of exactly what happened, and he was not agitated and combative. I mean, this is key, Ben. Um, the Dinwiddie County Commonwealth's attorney said he he was not combative. Yeah, and on the video— Amy, the one good thing about video, and thank God for the advent of technology, because for decades, uh, black people would say that the police are brutalizing us, that they're engaged in excessive force, and people would always believe the police were. They would always take the police narrative. But now with video, you can see for yourself what happened, and there is no video that we have seen that shows Ivo being combative or posing a threat to anybody. They're saying, take our word for it. And even irrespective, Amy, if he did something at some point during his crisis, we clearly see on the video that has been released to the public that never was Ivo posing a threat. I mean, when you think about it, I got so many calls from all across America, across the world, saying, why? This is so unnecessary. He's handcuffed and shackled. If they just leave him in the room and wait for him to get proper medical attention, then who's at harm? Why do you have to put him face down? Why do you have to put knees in his back? Why do you have to smother him to death? It is it's just so unnecessary, as many of these deaths. And three years after George Floyd, why would police or law enforcement officials be putting their knees anywhere on a, unrestra- on a restrained person who is face down? Absolutely, uh, Ben Crump. And if you could explain, I mean, what's especially uh, shocking and horrifying about this incident is, of course, that it takes place in a hospital and that, too, in a mental uh, hospital where presumably uh, the medical staff is accustomed to dealing with people. Even in this case, he's not even combative. But even if he were, what would justify in a facility like this the police, together with medical staff, actively, in fact, murdering one of their patients? There there is nothing that would justify it. In fact, what is equally troubling is that you have so many people standing around and nobody intervenes. We remember on Tyree Nichols' tragic killing in Memphis, Tennessee, that was one of the preeminent issues that none of those police officers intervened while they were watching a young man be beat to death, be tortured. And so you see those similar issues here in Richmond, Virginia, where nobody intervened, not the medical staff, not any of the security, anybody there. They simply watched. And 
Can you imagine setting your stopwatch for 12 minutes and just think about how much time goes into 12 minutes, how many seconds, and the fact that Ibo can't breathe. They saying that where he was still moving when they had him on the ground. Our experts opine, absolutely, you would be moving too if you're face down, restrained, and you got 12, uh, 10 people on top of you for 12 minutes. If you're struggling, you're trying to move so you can get air. And that's what was denied to Ivo, uh, his opportunity to breathe. And that's what is very disturbing that the medical personnel who are trained on how to preserve life could not recognize that Ivo needed somebody to intervene to give him the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of their professionalism, and mostly the benefit of humanity. Ben, could you talk about this specific hospital where he was held and where this incident occurred? It has, yeah. uh, go ahead. Yeah, it has, uh, as my co-counsel, Mark Crudis and I have been researching with our legal team, this certainly isn't the first incident where uh, patients who have been, I guess, uh, dealing with mental health crises have uh, been abused in the sense that other black people have alleged that police used excessive force against them. And, you know, they come up with all kind of things to try to justify the cause of death. But I believe, as other families have alleged, their family members were killed because of an overdose of excessive force. And so we have to use this as an opportunity to deal with the issues of mental health in America. We need legislation. We need policies to try to prevent any more IVOs. You know, President Biden a couple of days ago had the television cast of uh, Ted Lasso, the award-winning show, at the White House to talk about the importance of mental health. Well, it is my fervent hope that they would have uh, engaged with black people who have mental health issues to say that we need to treat those important as well and not as criminal issues. Because we saw it in Pam Turner in Houston, Texas, a black woman having a mental health crisis and the police end up shooting her in the face, in the chest and in the stomach while she's laying on uh, the ground on her back. And that video is horrific. And then we see Gershon Freeman in Memphis, Tennessee, Shelby County Jail, who is beat to death while he's naked in the uh, jail having a mental health crisis. And so what happened to Ivo isn't an isolated incident in America. When you're black in America and you have a mental health crisis, too often the determining factor of whether you live or die becomes the color of your skin and the status of your mental health. And that should not be the case. Ben, I want to go back to Ivo's mother, Caroline Oko. This young man you see here had a big heart. Ivo was the guy that his classmates drew to. When they needed someone to talk to, he was the listener. He would take time to listen to them. 
and then he would take time to process and then lean back in. My son was a leader. He was not a follower. He also brought a different perspective to the table. If there was a discussion, he was not afraid to go the other way when everybody else is following. This was my baby. He cared for people. He cared that people were treated right. It is so horrifying to meet all too often young black men after their death with their mothers or sisters or partners describing who they were. Ben Crump, as we wrap up, um, the pile-on was more than 11 minutes. In the case of Derek Chauvin murdering uh, George Floyd, it was uh, nine and a half minutes. At this point, what are you demanding? We're and also, demanding. can you talk about the fact that the defense attorneys have called for holding Ivo's body? It could be weak, something that the judge ruled against yesterday. Yeah, you know, it is God-awful that this family is having to grieve the death of an unnecessary and justifiable and unconstitutional uh, killing of their loved one. But it is uh, insult on top of injury to say that they are going to be prevented for possibly weeks at having the funeral services for Ivo because these defense attorneys are arguing that they have a right to uh, do an autopsy or some independent autopsy from their choosing. Well, you know, it's, it's disturbing. They have video. I mean, there's no question what ha killed him. The medical examiner has done the autopsy. They will have the benefit of having all the slides and the uh, reports from that autopsy. But to try to hold up his funeral is uh, disturbing, especially for this family. Can you imagine your loved one being killed by the people who are supposed to protect and serve them, but then they are trying to say, you can't have the funeral for another month. I mean, we can't allow that to happen. And I, I pray that the judge would not allow that to happen because what we need is just like the police chief said in Memphis, Tennessee, when you see a tragedy like this, an injustice like this, a crime committed like this on video, the community needs to see us moving swiftly we need to move swiftly towards justice, because justice delayed is justice denied. Ben Crump, we want to thank you very much for being with us. I believe the judge did rule against the defense request to hold the body of Ivo, saying a corpse is not a T-shirt or something else that can be easily stored. Ben Crump, civil rights attorney representing the family of Ivo Ocheno. Coming up, we speak to the Iraqi journalist Raith Abdul-Ahad, author of the new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. Stay with us.
The sound of disquiet here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue to mark the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we're joined by Raith Abdullahad, an award-winning Iraqi journalist and author. He was born in Baghdad in 1975 and was working as an architect when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003. Raith started his journalism career at The Guardian soon after the invasion as a translator for Guardian reporters. He has since received the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism, the British Press Awards Foreign Reporter of the Year, and the Orwell Prize. His book is just out on this 20th anniversary, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. Raith Abdulhad is joining us from Istanbul, Turkey, today. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Raith. This book is magnificent. It is a deep dive into understanding the effects of an invasion and occupation, and beyond that, the entire region. And we congratulate you for this work. Why don't we start off with the book's title, A Stranger in Your Own City? Describe Baghdad, a place you'd hardly left by the time you'd become an architect. And then what happened on March 20th, the bombing of your uh, country? Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you, Nermeen, for having me back. Uh, it's exactly like that. I grew up in Baghdad. I rarely left the city for 28 years. And I presume I knew the city very well. I used to walk everywhere. My school was in one part of the city. My family lived in another part. My friends are in the east and the west of the city. So I knew the geography of the city very well. It's a flat, open city, no markations, no boundaries within the city itself. And then within... Two years of the occupation, I was awake early in the morning in my hotel room, and I'm trying to find friends who can escort me to different parts of the city. And that's when it hit me that I have become a stranger in my own city because I can't actually, literally travel from the hotel where I was staying to where my school was or where my friends were without having a someone to escort me. And often, two people escorting me, you know, because you never know what kind of militia will be manning checkpoints in the road. And that was a direct effect of, of the war. I mean, my life from an architect or a journalist, an accidental journalist, I would say, was appended by this war like so many other uh, lives in, in Iraq and in the region, of course. Beth, one of the things that's um, very instructive and interesting in your book is the account you give of your years uh, in Baghdad, as you said, almost 30 without uh, barely uh, leaving, um, all of the events that led up to what the society and the context was in which the U.S. invasion took place. So if you could begin with that, you were five years old when the Iraq-Iran war began uh, and then uh, followed swiftly by the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the sanctions. If you could just walk us through that period and what Baghdad was like in those years. I mean, of course, Iraqis and myself included of a certain generation, their relationship to war did not start in 2003. As you said, uh, I was five when I first time witnessed uh, the bombing of my city. It was 
you know, Iraq was bombing Tehran, the Iranians were bombing Baghdad, and that eight years war that, although people in the cities, the major cities were spared from, but we all lived through its dynamic, through its impact of the society, the militarization of the society, uncles, cousins, neighbors all being taken to the front. Every spring you see the streets in Baghdad covered in this black cloth announcing the death of, uh, of soldiers, uh, conscript soldiers at the front. So that was part of the dynamic. And of course, we all know during these eight years, Saddam was, you know, supported by the West. He, he was the darling of the West. He was given weapons, he was given intelligence, because he was serving a purpose. And then, of course, that militarization of the society, that war led to Saddam's disastrous, foolish, criminal decision to invade Kuwait, and which led to the 1991 war. And I have to say, the bombing of 1991 really destroyed Baghdad, really destroyed the infrastructure of the country. So our relationship with America did not start in 2003. We've already been bombed by the Americans in 1991. Then the sanctions, and in all the wars I've witnessed as a civilian Iraqi, as a journalist who later went to report on wars, I've never seen anything devastating on a society like the sanctions. It crushed the Iraqi society. It turned a, a proud, educated nation into a nation of hustlers, basically. Everyone trying to get a job, everyone trying to get a little bit of money. And that enshrined the corruption, which we see its results now. You know, when you see the salaries of a teacher dropping into $2, a policeman getting $5, corruption becomes a way of survival. I want to that ask destruction you, of the society I, was I, a prelude. Uh, Raith, I wanted to stick to that issue of sanctions, the way the president of the United States perceived them uh, and the absolutely devastating effect in Iraq. Uh, On Election Day in 2000, I had a chance to speak with President Bill Clinton, who called into our radio station, Pacifica Radio, WBAI, um, to get out the vote. So I had a chance to question him about the effect of sanctions in Iraq. President Clinton, uh, U.N. figures show that up to 5,000 children a month die in Iraq because of the uh, sanctions against That's not true. That's not true. The past two uh, U.N. heads of the program in Iraq have quit calling the U.S. uh, policy, U.S.-U.N. policy, genocidal. What is your response to that? They're wrong. They're wrong, President Clinton said. And, of course, there was the famous comment of Madeleine Albright when questioned um, by Judy Woodruff of 60 Minutes about 500,000 children dying as a result of the sanctions. Did she think the price was worth it? And she said yes. Um, Your response, and for people to understand the effect of these sanctions alone— I mean, I can't emphasize the the impact of the sanctions. I think everything that has happened in Iraq in the last 30 years through the life of this, you know, dictator, his adventures, the occupation that followed the sectarian politics, it was the sanctions. That is the moment when you destroy society. Look, during the sanctions, Saddam and his private clique, they didn't suffer. I mean, they they were wealthy. Saddam went on building his palaces, his clan, his people close to him. 
survived, actually they benefited even more because because of the sanctions. There was a uh, a very you know a very important black market. They controlled the black market and they became wealthy, like it's happening in other different countries as we speak at the moment. The people close to the power they benefit from the sanctions because they become the only gate through which any source of income can be can be generated. It's us at the Iraqis. It's the people. You go to these hospitals and there are no medicine. You go to schools and there are no pencils, no books. I mean, literally, I and my friends were scavenging through the drawers of the architectural school looking for used papers so they can use them on the back because we don't have access to these things. You know, Saddam's children did not need papers. They didn't go scavenging for pencils. It's us. It's us who live through these things. It's us who are dependent on this meager uh, monthly ration given by the state. So, I mean, the delusion, I don't know, it's delusion or it's deliberate destruction of a society. And then you come in 2003, after all these things, after all, you know, the Iraqis looked at the Americans as the people who were causing, imposing these sanctions. 2003 happened. And yet... There was a moment in which the Iraqis, I think, had this Faustian deal and thought, okay, we don't want war, we don't want to be bombed again, but we don't want Saddam. Let's see what's going to happen. And what's happened is is a civil war on such a magnitude that 20 years later, and this is the sad story about Iraq, 20 years later, people are yearning to the dictator. They think, oh, the days of the dictator were days of peace and prosperity and whatnot. And this is a direct outcome of the disasters that un, that you know unfolded since 2003. The unimaginable happened that led people to yearning to a strong dictator. Red, yes, we'll just uh, turn to that uh, uh, now, what followed the, the invasion of 2003. But if you could elaborate on that, you argue in the book uh, that, uh, and as you've said just now, that, that Saddam Hussein was not weakened. If anything, he was strengthened. His regime was strengthened uh, by the sanctions, uh, even as uh, millions of Iraqis suffered these devastating consequences. And you also say that the quality of his rule changed. I'll just quote a line from your book to you. Uh, You say the old obsolete revolutionary images of pan-Arabism and socialism were replaced by a new set of values based on Islam and the tribe, portraying himself, that is Saddam, as the pious father-like tribal sheikh. Could you explain what happened and what that meant for what followed? So Saddam and the Ba'ath Party, when they came to power in the 60s, the language of the, the, the narrative of the language was of this national liberation, the language of socialism. I mean, of course, it, it meant nothing. It was just kind of the theatrics of it. And the, you know, supporting anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, and all that kind of language. And, and he and his ministers were always dressed in military uniforms, you know, the, the sunglasses, the cigar, all the paraphernalia of, of a revolutionary leader. After 1990 and the invasion of Kuwait, as religiosity spread throughout the Middle East and not only in, in, in Iraq, Saddam had to change the narrative. The party, the security forces were weakened because of the sanctions, because of the bombing, because of the fight. He needed a new way, a new narrative to control the society. So the religion served to serve multi multi purposes. 
A, it created this, in, in a society that is suffering, the religion was a solace, was a way to to find answers against those, you know, Americans who are imposing the sanctions. So, so that served uh, a purpose. The, the spread of religious movements in the Middle East, uh, Saddam, by adopting a religious narrative himself, he managed to kind of, you know, pull the carpet basically from all the Salafi jihadi movements that were spreading around uh, in the region. Third, religion became a, a way to to control the society, the mosques, the, the the network of preachers, but also the tribes became another method to control the society, where he cannot send his uh, weakened security forces. He can uh, depend on what's the word, uh, faithful, uh, loyalist, loyalist tribes, t- tribe elders. And that happened all over Iraq, uh, not in a specific region, not to a specific sect. Suddenly Iraq moved from a, a secular, whatever country, adopting secular rhetoric, let's say, into a country adopting tribal and religious rhetoric. That religious rhetoric, of course, it does, did, Saddam did not allow any extremist uh, religious movement to exist in the country, Sunni or Shia, because any political uh, formation would threaten his rule. But that religious narrative, that religious rhetoric, allowed, created the basis upon which both Sunni and Shia religious movements emerged after 2003 to oppose the Americans and fight the jihad against the Americans. So let's go to that moment when the Americans come in. You describe a scene in the book uh, when you see an American Marine covering a statue of Saddam Hussein with the American flag. So if you could respond to that, I mean, explain what your response and the response of others there was to that. And then the fact that you yourself, a few days after the invasion, uh, you were arrested. Explain what happened. So, you know, I was I was in my neighborhood, in my, my house. I saw the, the Americans there, and uh, and I followed them like many Iraqis and stood in the square. We saw this statue being toppled. We toppled by the Amer- by the Marines, by the way, not by the Iraqis. Iraqis couldn't bring it down, so the Marines pulled their vehicle, tied the noose, pulled the statue, and then we also on TV this this iconic image of this U.S. Marine pulling a U.S. flag from his pocket and covering the face of the statue with it. And of course, at that time, there was this kind of collective gasp of, oh my God, what are you doing? You know, at least allow this, uh, the charade of liberation to last for a day. Later, I came to realize that that American Marine was a very honest person. I mean, he unlike all the generals and the politicians and the people in the Pentagon and George W. Bush were talked about liberating Iraq and liberation. That Marine saw the war as it was, as a war between the United States, between his army and the Iraqis. The Iraqis were defeated and he was victorious. It was his, in his, that act, he was more honest in reflecting the realities of the ground because that that quickly became the reality on the ground. Those soldiers were no longer liberators. I mean, that facade of liberation probably lasted for a day. But very soon you see them pointing their guns, manning checkpoints, like all arrogant hubris empires throughout histories. Once you send your soldiers into you know, occupying another foreign land, the soldiers, the young people who have no idea, have never exposed, they will see all the Iraqis as their enemies. I mean, look at the previous segment. They see part of their own society as the enemy. Imagine how they saw us Iraqis. Um, A few months later, I was driving back um, 
with another Iraqi friend, we, it was the day Saddam was arrested. We were stopped at an uh, American checkpoint, army checkpoint at night. They were suspicious of us where to Iraq is driving at night because it's our country. And, uh, and they were put in jail. We were released next day, but as I woke up in the morning, we slept in this bare uh, former Iraqi military police cell. The irony of it, I, someone who had dodged the Iraqi military police for five years, end up in their cell by my supposed liberators. But this next morning, they take us to a yard, and there's a long line of Iraqis. We're all crouching on, on the ground, some of us blindfolded, others not. That was the face of of the supposed liberation, which was never liberation. It became occupation very, very quickly. And of course, insurgency starts uh, for whatever reasons, some jihadi, religious, some nationalists, they, they fight against the Americans, the Americans will behave, uh, you know, they will, one village, few people fight from one village, Thanks to American policies, by rounding up men, by putting them in detention, by humiliating, by breaking into houses, you'll see the whole village and then the whole community and then the whole province fighting against the Americans. So it was doomed from day one. There was no scenario in which an American army with all its legacies in Iraq, in the Middle East, in the region can transform that adventure which soon it called it occupation, with all the happy connotation of the word occupation in the Middle East, turned it into something else. Uh, and that's the disaster that led. Faith, I wanted to stick with April 9, 2003, that day that the statue of Saddam Hussein was brought down. I remember CNN so clearly. You have CNN domestic and CNN international. On CNN International, they were showing a split screen of the statue coming down, repeated over and over again. Of course, the Marine was uh, just outside the frame. Um, it looked like uh, Iraqis brought down that statue. But on the other side were the casualties of war. Now, CNN Domestic had the same access to that video, but that's not what they were showing. They were just showing Saddam Hussein's statue coming down. In the same way, on March 20th, shock and awe, Americans love fireworks, and that's exactly what it looked like. So you see the bombs in the sky, and you see a statue coming down, but not the casualties of war. Can you talk about what that was on the ground? Ultimately, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. And how that led to, as you talk about, the rise of ISIS, um, the what everyone thought in the United States, there's this huge division between Sunni and Shia. You said you didn't even want to ask that question to people when you were translating for other journalists, because you said you didn't often know who was Sunni or who was Shia growing up, that this was also aggravated in a fractured society by the occupation and invasion. So to go back to that kind of point about the CNN and the domestic CNN, in 2005, I came to New York for the first time in my life, and I switched on the TV, and I, you know, 2005, Baghdad was burning in the fighting, the insurgency, Americans were dying every day, and I thought, like, I would see this kind of war being broadcasted daily uh, to the American audience. And there was nothing. There was nothing. I don't remember the channels on, on local TV in New York. But there was nothing as if, you know, the life was going on. I come from Iraq. Your country has been occupying my country. There was nothing. Anyhow, the point is, after 2000, uh, 2004, 2003, the, the 9th of April, that, that occupation with all its problems, it did not stop there. It, it created its own dynamic within the society. The occupation, with the occupation came a group of exiled Iraqi politicians who had 
evolved their sectarian political uh, thoughts in in exile, in in kind of very claustrophobic, very uh, traumatized uh, places in Tehran and London. They've all lost people. They've all lost friends and cousins. So they saw the the regime. They saw Iraq in this binary way of Sunnis versus Shia, and and because they were outside the country, they were isolated from the country. So we we never had any connections with them. The way they sold the invasion, and, and let's remember that uh, kind of the regime change in Iraq started in the mid-90s, late 90s, uh, with the Iraq uh, Whatever Act in 1998. So it did not start in 2003. The narrative that was sold to the Americans um, was a narrative of a part of the, the society dominated by another part of the society. And that was criminal, a horrible way of thinking of the Iraqi society. I grew up in Baghdad. I don't want to say there are no Sunnis or Shia or Kurds. I don't want to say there is no oppression against uh, political Shia parties. I don't want to say that we were all equal. But it was not a sectarian regime. It was a Saddam, his clan, and his tribe regime that dominated. I mean, the army, uh, some Sunni officers in the army tried to topple Saddam in the 90s. So the narrative that was sold was a sectarian narrative. And of course, in every narrative based on victimhood, if one part of the population are victims, then the others are the victimizers. When the Americans came, they saw Saddam as a Sunni. So by association, every single Sunni in Iraq became tainted by the regime, was pushed into a corner. The process of debathification, of purging the army, or the kind of the army was totally uh, disbanded. All these policies were directed against the Sunnis. So, of course, what did the Sunnis do, who had never, who had never a communal identity of themselves, they are pushed in a corner, and they had to reject this American adventure in Iraq, this American occupation in Iraq, uh, the lack of security in Iraq after 2003 allowed everyone who had grievances against the Americans to flood into Iraq, and that includes the jihadis, but also include the Iranian uh, polit- uh, the Iranian establishment who wanted to defeat the Americans in Iraq because they were the second on the axis of evil. All these different elements led to the establishment of a civil war. In, in, the, in the common narrative of Iraq, it, people talk about the civil war as it happened in 2005 after the bombing of the Shia shrines in Samarra. For me personally, I think civil war in terms of fighting, in terms of killing, started early in 2004. But also the civil war starts in a society not when men carry guns, but when the society is divided between us and them. That is a prelude to a civil war. And of course that civil war, you know, uh, coupled with corruption of the Iraqi establishment with the sectarianism of the Iraqi security forces led eventually to the emergence of ISIS in in Iraq and Syria because who were benefiting from the chaos in the region to reestablish their lines. And Khaled, could you say, because you also, um, just to go back, the you attended Saddam Hussein's trial. Could you describe the scene at that trial and what you think the the repercussions were of how that trial was conducted for what followed? You know, Nermeen, the problem with Iraq is we we don't know the history, and we don't know our history. We still don't know why Saddam uh, started the war against Iran. We still don't know what are the dynamics, what are the policies that led him to invade Kuwait and all the madness and the upheaval that we lived through after that. So I thought that 
finally, here is Saddam on trial. Why don't we do an you know, international tribunal? Why don't we put him in front of uh, UN, uh, like what's happened in Bosnia and Serbia and other countries? But no, because of the Iraqi politicians, the sectarian Iraqi politicians did not want to, and the Americans, both of them, the Iraqi sectarian politicians did not want to hand him to the UN because he will not be executed, of course, and, and, and he was going to be executed regardless of the uh, result of the trial. And the Americans who didn't want didn't want to hand anything to the UN, didn't want any UN involvement, and probably the UN didn't want to be involved in that project itself. Instead, what we have, instead of Saddam being put on trial uh, in front of the Iraqi people and us knowing what he did and, and why he did that to our community, to our life, to our society. Instead, we have a charade of a trial in which Saddam not only uh, emerged as this hero in the Arab world, he exonerates himself, he reinvents himself as this dignified man carrying his Quran, going there in front of a bunch of you know, I don't know what to describe them. It's just like a circus court, uh, a charade. The Americans, through that trial, turned Saddam into a hero in the Arab world. And the Arab world defeated, looking for a savior, for a hero. And they look at him. So since then, you drive in the streets of Amman, Kabul, Sana'a, you always see a picture of Saddam on the back of, uh, you know, taxi, uh, taxi windows. Why? Because he, he was reinvented for them, thanks to that kind of trial, thanks to the charade of the trial. And of course, we never, not, we never got any reason. And of course, what happened with his execution, with uh, mutilating his corpse, and, and, and this sense of Ihana, uh, we call it in Arabic, is to to defeat a defeated uh, segment of the society. It was all playing into the sectarian narrative. Raith, we don't have much time, but I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> 20 years later, what do you want the world to understand about the U.S. invasion, about your country, Iraq, and if you have any hope at this point? Amy, I just want accountability. I don't want people to go to jail. I don't want people to, when they die, I want accountability. I want all the people who executed this war, who planned this war, the people who murdered Iraqi civilians, be it Americans or be it Iraqis themselves, you know, militia commanders, uh, politicians. I want all those people held accountable. Accountable not to go to jail or shot and executed. No, I want the history to be told properly so that people in Iraq now, 20 years later, can have a peace of mind, can have a, a moment of reconciliation with themselves. This is what we are lacking. I mean, you look at Iraq now. What is Iraq now, 20 years later? It's a very wealthy country, 20, uh, $100, $120 billion a year. And yet parts of Baghdad and parts of the south of the country are really poor in wretched states. And you look at the Iraqi political establishment, and you see many people there who still uh, command militias, who had committed atrocities during the civil war, who led to the death of thousands of people. And they're there sitting in the parliament or appearing on TV every day. Why? Because there is no accountability. Same thing with your country. I mean, people are either dying peacefully or going to paint and reinventing themselves as ski resort trainers and whatnot. This is a disaster. You know, all these lives, Iraqi and American, by the way, are, are lost, are wasted for nothing. And and. Raith, we have to leave it there, but we're going to do part two and post it at democracynow.org. Raith Abdullahad, his new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East Long War. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.